Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, Charles Dickens published his classic, A Christmas Carol, on December 19, 1843. He had written it in just six weeks' time. He was 31 years old and hoped the work would sell well. He was in a bit of a financial bind. Elements of Dickens' own life colored the novel. When he was 12, his father, a clerk in a pay office, was sent to debtor's prison. Charles had to go to work in a factory under miserable conditions. While he went on to become a wildly successful author, he hadn't forgotten his origins. However, with stagnant sales, mounting debts, and a fifth child on the way, he was keen to avoid his father's fate. While the work was in part mercenary, it was also inspired by a genuine empathy for those experiencing poverty. That October, Dickens traveled to Manchester to give a speech. The subject was the importance of education for every class. He had considered writing a pamphlet titled An Appeal to the People of England on behalf of the poor man's child, but he scrapped that project. He noted at the time that he had another idea with potentially, quote, 20,000 times the force, unquote. While on that trip, he visited a nephew who had a disability. Dickens also had a sickly younger brother the family had nicknamed Tiny Fred. Though A Christmas Carol sold out its first run of 6,000 copies in a week, it wasn't initially the financial success Dickens had hoped for. Nevertheless, he bounced back. The Carol has, of course, earned an enduring legacy. Later in his life, he gave many paid readings of the work. He delivered one in Boston in 1867 on Christmas Eve. It was reported that a businessman who heard that telling closed his factory for Christmas and gave all his workers a turkey. A note to all the successful business people out there. Every year, for 13 years now, Town Hall Seattle has presented A Rogue's Christmas. This year, curator Jean Sherrard and friends chose to present A Christmas Carol. The readers include Jean Sherrard, Kurt Beatty, Marianne Owen, and Julie Briskman. Musical elements in the full version include a recording of the Dorpat brothers performing the Poor Birdie song, interstitial music composed and performed by Ethan Sherrard, and a performance by the Rogue's house band, Pineola. Hi, I'm Gene Sherrard, host of A Rogue's Christmas, celebrating our 13th annual program at Seattle's Town Hall. Of course, we're not in the Great Hall this year as we usually are, with its stained glass windows and lofty ceilings and renovated earthquake-proof walls, but we're delighted to join you anyway from our smaller rooms and hallways. Mm -hmm. Now, for our Rogue's Christmas regulars, a couple of notes. 
we chose to pivot this year from our usual seasonal fare of slightly twisted tales of toppled trees and tipsy Santas and narrowly averted holiday disasters to something a bit more traditional and yet, for its time and ours, revolutionary. Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol in the fall of 1843, eight years before the first white settlers of the Denny Party were welcomed to the Northwest by the Coast Salish people particularly the Duwamish, who have lived here for many thousands of years. Of course, Town Hall, along with the rest of Seattle, stands on their unceded traditional territory, and we thank them for our continued use of the natural resources of their ancestral homeland. In English society, Dickens saw firsthand the huge inequities of wealth and class, widened by an unfathomable abyss of poverty. And his Christmas Carol is in large part a heartfelt plea for societal change. It's also a cracking good ghost story about a man who's given up on life, on love and happiness, bah humbug, but is quite dramatically offered a second chance. And now let me introduce our readers for this afternoon. Seattle and Rogue Christmas favorites, Kurt Beatty, Marianne Owen, and Julie Briskman. Well, Julie Briskman is co-founder and artistic producer of The Seagull Project, where her roles include Arcadena and The Seagull, Olga in The Three Sisters, and Ranovskaya in The Cherry Orchard. Julie's played leading roles at all of Seattle's major theaters, as well as at major theaters across the nation, The Guthrie, Yale Rep, Berkeley Rep, The Old Globe, and, and many, many more. She's also a proud recipient of the Lunt Fontaine Fellowship and a treasure wherever she appears. Marianne Owen earned her MFA from Yale School of Drama and has been working as an actor with a goal of playing as many and as varied roles as she can. And to her surprise and delight and to ours, she's achieved that working across the U.S. in Europe, Israel, Russia. One of her proudest moments was having the opportunity to act at the old Moscow theater, art theater where Chekhov and Stanislavski held court. Having earned a fiber arts certificate from the UW, Marianne has been a weaver for many years and has art pieces shown in galleries a few times, which is, I think, an ideal pursuit for a pandemic. Now, Kurt Beatty has been making theater since his professional debut at the age of 10 as Little Jake in Annie Get Your Gun for the Melody Fair Theater outside of Buffalo, New York. I'm afraid it's all downhill from there, Kurt. <laughs> but what a ride. He's worked as a professional actor, director, playwright, and dramaturg, and his influence on Northwest theater is nothing short of astonishing. Founding member of the legendary Empty Space Acting Company, literary director at the Seattle Rep, artistic director of ACT Theater for 13 years, where he's now artistic director emeritus. He directed Axe Christmas Carol many times and performed Scrooge by his own estimate six times.
Marley was dead to begin with. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend, his sole mourner. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone was Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, <laughs> scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. External heat and cold had little influence on him. No warmth could warm, no cold could chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain less open to entreaty. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was o'clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked to edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, Old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting, foggy weather, and the city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open, that he might keep an eye upon his clerk, who, in a dismal little cell beyond a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation Scrooge had of his approach. <laughs> A Merry Christmas. Bah, humbug. Oh, Christmas a humbug, Uncle. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do. Out upon Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without any money? A time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer? If I had my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding <laughs> and buried with a stake of holly through his heart, he should. Uncle, nephew, keep Christmas in your own way. Let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Well, let me leave it alone then. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say, Christmas among the rest. But I have always thought of Christmas time as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of when men and women open their shut up hearts freely. 
and think of people below them as if they were really fellow travelers to the grave and not just another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I say God bless it. The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded. Let me hear another sound from you and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir. I wonder you don't get into Parliament. God, don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. Scrooge said that he would see him. Yes, indeed, he did. That he would see him in that extremity first. But why? Why? Why did you get married? <laughs> because I fell in love. Because you fell in love? Ha! Good afternoon. I want nothing from you, Uncle. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute, but I have made the trial in homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humor to the last. So, a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon. And a happy new year. Good afternoon. His nephew left the room without an angry word notwithstanding. The clerk, in letting Scrooge's nephew out, had let another person in. He was a portly gentleman, pleasant to behold, who now stood with his hat off in Scrooge's office. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years. He died seven years ago, this very night. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Hundreds of thousands are in want of com common comfort, sir. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons, but under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the unoffending multitude, a few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is a time of all others when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to remain anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, sir, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I cannot afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the prisons and the workhouses. <laughs> they cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, they had better do it <laughs> and just decrease the surplus population. At length, the hour of shutting up the counting house arrived. With an ill will, Scrooge, dismounting from his stool, tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clerk in the tank, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. Oh, well, you want all day tomorrow, I suppose. If quite convenient, sir. Well, it is not convenient. 
and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself mightily ill-used, I'll be bound. Well, yes, sir. And yet you don't think me ill-used when I pay a full day's wages for no work. It's, it's only once a year, sir. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. <laughs> uh, but I suppose you must have the whole day. You'll be here all the earlier next morning. Yes, sir. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no greatcoat, and then ran home as hard as he could pelt to play at Blindman's Buff. Scrooge took his usual melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms in a lowering pile of buildings, upper yard and dreary enough, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge, the other rooms being all let out as offices. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door of this house, except that it was very large. Also, that Scrooge had seen it, night and morning, during his whole residence in that place. Also, that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London. And yet, Scrooge having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley? It was not angry or ferocious, but it looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up upon its ghostly forehead. Like Jacob Marley? Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon. It was a knocker again. Oh, poor, poor, uh, nonsense. He closed the door with a bang. The sound resounded through the house like thunder. Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. He fastened the door and walked across the hall and up the stairs, slowly, too, trimming his candle as he went. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. Quite satisfied, he put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap and sat down before a very low fire to take his gruel. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell that hung in the room. It was with great astonishment and with a strange, inexplicable dread that as he looked, he saw the bell began to swing. Soon it rang out loudly and so did every bell in the house. 
This was succeeded by a clanking noise deep down below, as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine cellar's cellar. Then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It came on through the heavy door and a specter passed into the room before his eyes. The same face, the very same. Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail. And it was made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. No, nor did he believe it even now. Though he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him. Though he felt the chilling influence of his death-cold eyes and noticed the very texture of the folded kerchief bound about its head and chin, he was still incredulous. Uh, how now? Wait. What, what do you want with me? Much. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Well, who were you then? In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley. I, 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 can you I, can you sit down? I can. We'll, we'll, we'll do it then. Scrooge asked the question because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace, as if he were quite used to it. You don't believe in me. I, I, I don't. Why do you doubt your senses? Well, because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. <laughs> you may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard. A uh, crumb of cheese, <laughs> a fragment of underdone potato. There's more a gravy than a grave about you, whatever you are. But the truth is, the spectre's voice disturbed the very marrow of his bones. And how much greater was his horror when the phantom taking off the bandage round its head, as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Mercy! Dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? It is why do spirits walk the earth and why do they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. The spectre raised a cry and shook its chain and wrung its shadowy hands. Uh, uh, you are fitter, Jacob. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will and of my own free will I wore it. 
I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere in life. My spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole, and weary journeys lie before me. Seven years dead and, and traveling all the time? No rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. You travel fast. On the wings of the wind. You might have got over a great quantity of ground in, in, in seven years. Oh, blind man, blind man. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one life's opportunities misused. Yet such was I. Well, but, but you were always a good man of business, Jacob. Business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. Hear me. My time is nearly gone. I, I, I will, but, 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 but don't be hard upon me. And don't be flowery, Jacob, pray. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope escaping my fate, a chance and hope of my procuring Ebenezer. Oh, you are always a good friend to me. Thank you. You will be haunted by three spirits. Uh, I, uh, uh, I, 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 I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow night, when the bell tolls one. Well, uh, couldn't I, I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Expect the second on the next night, at the same hour. The third upon the next night, when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more. The spectre walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little so that when the apparition reached it, it was wide open. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double locked, as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. Scrooge tried to say humbug, but stopped at the first syllable. And being, from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, he went straight to bed without undressing and fell asleep on the instant. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that looking out of bed, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber, until suddenly the church clock told a deep, dull, hollow, melancholy one. 
Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn aside by a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and, in singular contradiction of that wintry emblem, had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. Are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold to me? I am. No. Oh, and what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. Rise and walk with me. The grasp, though gentle as a woman's hand, was not to be resisted. He rose, but finding that the spirit made towards the window clasped its robe in supplication. <gasps> I am mortal and, and, and liable to fall. The spirit laid its hand upon his heart. Bear but a touch of my hand, and you shall be upheld in more than this. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand. Good heavens! I was bred in this place. I was a boy here. He was conscious of a thousand odors floating in the air, each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. Your lip is trembling. And what is that upon your cheek? <laughs> oh, oh, nonsense, nonsense, a raindrop. Lead on. You recollect the way? Remember it. I could walk it blindfold. Some shaggy ponies now were seen trotting towards them with boys upon their backs who called to other boys in country gigs and carts driven by farmers. All these boys were in great spirits and shouted to each other until the broad fields were so full of merry music that the crisp air laughed to hear it. Huh. These are but shadows of things that have been. They have no consciousness of us. Scrooge knew them, everyone. Why was he filled with gladness when he heard them give each other Merry Christmas as they parted at crossroads and byways for their several hopes? <laughs> what was Merry Christmas to Scrooge? Out upon Merry Christmas, what good had it ever done him? The school is not quite deserted. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. I believe you know him well. I know him as I know myself. Yes, I know him. They were now in the busy thoroughfares of a city. It was made plain enough by the dressing of the shops that here too it was Christmas time. 
but it was evening and the streets were lighted up. The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door. Do you know this place? Know it? Why, I was apprenticed here. They went in. An old gentleman sat behind such a high desk that if he had been two inches taller, he must have knocked his head against the ceiling. Why, it's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart, it's Fezziwig alive again. Old Fezziwig laid down his pen and looked up at the clock, which pointed to the hour of seven. Yo there, Ebenezer, Dick! Scrooge's former self, now grown a young man, came briskly in, accompanied by his fellow prentice. Ah, Dick Wilkins, to be sure. Bless me, yes, there he is. He, he was very much attached to me, was Dick. Oh, poor Dick. Ah, dear, dear. Yo ho, my boys, no more work tonight. Christmas Eve, Dick. Christmas, Ebenezer. Hilly ho! Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room in here. Hilly ho, Dick. Cheer up, Ebenezer. Clear away. There was nothing they wouldn't have cleared away or couldn't have cleared away with old Fezziwig looking on. It was done in a minute. In came a fiddler with a music book and tuned like 50 stomach aches. In came Mrs. Fizzywig, one vast, substantial smile. In came the three Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. In came the six young followers, whose hearts they broke. In came all the young men and women employed in the business. In came the housemaid with her cousin, the baker. In came the cook with her brother's particular friend, the milkman. In they all came one after another, some shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling. In they all came anyhow and everyhow. Away they all went, twenty couples at once, hands half round and back again, the other way, down the middle and up again, round and round in various stages of affectionate grouping. Look at old Fezziwig. <laughs> Look at him there. Oh, isn't he wonderful? How he dances. No one better than he. Oh, old Fezziwig. Just as he was. Oh, I remember him so. Ah, and Mrs. Fezziwig too. Oh, what a lovely party. There were more dances, and there were forfeits, and there were more dances, and there was cake, and there was punch, and there was a great piece of cold roast, and there was a great piece of cold boiled, and there were mince pies and plenty of beer. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig took their stations, one on either side the door, and... Shaking hands with every person individually as he or she went out, wished him or her a Merry Christmas. When everybody had retired but the two apprentices, they did the same to them. And thus the cheerful voices died away and the lads were left to their beds, which were under a counter in the back shop. <laughs> a small matter to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small? He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal money. 
Three or four pounds? Oh, it isn't that. It isn't that spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, pleasure or tire. The happiness is just as great as if it cost a fortune. Oh. What is the matter? Yeah, nothing in particular. Something, I think? No, no. I'd like to be able to say a word or two to my own clock just now. Oh, that's all. My time grows short. Quick. This was not addressed to Scrooge, but it produced an immediate effect. For again, he saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of life. His face had not the harsh and rigid lines of later years, but it had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. He was not alone, but sat by the side of a fair young girl in a black dress, in whose eyes there were tears which sparkled in the light that shone out of the ghost of Christmas past. It matters little to you, very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can comfort you in time to come, as I have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you, Belle? A golden one. You fear the world too much. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off, one by one, until the master passion gain engrosses you. Have I not? Well, what then? Even if I have grown so much wiser, what then? I am not changed towards you, am I? Your own feeling tells you that you were not what you are. I am. That which promised happiness when we were one in heart is fraught with misery now. How often and how keenly I have thought of this, I will not say. It is enough that I've thought of it and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words, no, never. In what then? In a changed nature, in an altered spirit, in another atmosphere of life, another hope as its great end, in everything that made you, made my love of any worth or value in your sight. Belle. And I release you with a full heart for the love of him you were once. May you be happy in the life you have chosen. Spirit, show me no more. Why do you delight to torture me? I told you these were shadows of the things that have been. They are what they are. Do not blame me. Remove me. I cannot bear it. Leave me. Take me back. Haunt me no longer. As he struggled with the spirit, he was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness, and further of being in his own bedroom. He had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep.
Scrooge awoke in his bedroom. A blaze of ruddy light streamed upon his bed, more alarming than a dozen ghosts, and he was powerless to make out what it meant. At last, he began to think that the source and secret of this ghostly light might be in the adjoining room, from whence it seemed to shine. He got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. Come in, Ebenezer Scrooge. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that. But it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked like a perfect grove. The leaves of holly, mistletoe and ivy reflected back the light as if many little mirrors had been scattered there. And such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that petrifaction of our hearth had never known. Heaped upon the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, cherry-cheeked apples, immense twelfth cakes, and great bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch there sat a giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn and held it up, high up to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. Come in, come in and know me better, man. Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before this spirit. He was not the dogged Scrooge he had been, and though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet them. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. You've never seen the like of me before. Uh, never. Uh, spirit, uh, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night upon compulsion and I learned a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if... If you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast. The room and its contents all vanished instantly. And they stood in the city streets upon a snowy Christmas morning. Scrooge and the ghost passed on invisible straight to Scrooge's clerks. And on the threshold of the door, the spirit smiled. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a mended gown, brave in ribbons, which are cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by a Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the bakers they'd smelt the goose and known it for their own, and basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these two young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies while he blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. 
Whatever has got your precious father then? And your brother Tiny Tim? And Martha weren't as late last Christmas Day by half an hour. Oh, here's Martha, mother. Hurrah, there's such a goose, Martha. Why, bless your heart alive, my dear. How late you are. We had a deal of work to finish up last night and had to clear away this morning, mother. Well, never mind. So long as you are come. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm. Lord bless ye. No, no, there's father coming. Hide, Martha, hide. So Martha hid herself, and in came Bob, the father, with at least three feet of comforter, exclusive of the fringe, hanging down before him, and his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas, for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where's our Martha? Not coming. Not coming? Not coming on Christmas Day? Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, if it were only in joke. So she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms, while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off to the wash house. Here I am! <laughs> and how did little Tim behave? Oh, as good as gold and better. Somehow... He gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much, and he thinks the strangest things you've ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant for them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Tiny Tim's active little crutch was heard upon the floor, and back he came, escorted by his brother and sister to the stool beside the fire. And while Bob, turning up his cuffs, as if the poor fellow they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons and stirred it round and round and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Mrs Cratchit made the gravy hissing hot. Master Peter mushed the potatoes with incredible vigour. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves. At last, the dishes were set on and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause as Mrs Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it in the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all round the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife and feebly cried, Hurrah! Ooh, and there never was such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavour, size and cheapness were the themes of universal admiration eked out by 
applesauce and mashed potatoes. It was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Hello. A great deal of steam. Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly, with the pudding like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half of half a quart of ignited brandy, with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Such a wonderful pudding, Mrs. Cratchit. The greatest success in pudding since the day we were married. At last, the dinner was done. The cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, and the fire made up. The compound in the jug being tasted and considered perfect. Apples and oranges were put upon the table and a shovelful of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle. And at his elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done. And Bob served it out with beaming looks, while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and crackled noisily. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless us. God bless us, everyone, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very closely to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, oh no, no kind spirits say he will be spared. If he be like to die, he'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Oh, oh dear. Man, if man you be in heart, forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. A toast. To Mr. Scrooge. Scrooge raised his head speedily on hearing his own name. I give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast, indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him peace of my mind to feast upon, and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. Oh, my dear, the, the, the children. Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, on what, what, when one drinks to the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. Oh, you know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. My dear, Christmas Day. Well, I'll drink his health for your sake and the days, not for his. Long life to him. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. To Mr. Scrooge. To Mr. Scrooge. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings which had no heartiness in it. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but 
he didn't care tuppence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for four, five minutes. After it had passed away, they were ten times merrier than before. All this time, the chestnuts and the jug went round and round, and by and by, they had a song about a lost child traveling in the snow from Tiny Tim, who had a plaintive little voice and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof, and their clothes were shabby. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, as this scene vanished, to hear a hearty laugh. It was his own nephew's, and Scrooge found himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room, with the spirit standing smiling by his side and looking at that same nephew. It is a fair, even-handed, noble adjustment of things that while there is infection in disease and sorrow, there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humor. When Scrooge's nephew laughed, Scrooge's niece by marriage laughed as heartily as he, and their assembled friends laughed out lustily. <laughs> he said that Christmas was a humbug as I live. He believed it too. More shame on him, Fred. Scrooge's niece was very pretty, exceedingly pretty, with a dimpled, surprised-looking capital face, a ragged little mouth that seemed made to be kissed, as no doubt it was. He's a comical old fellow, that's the truth. Not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offences carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he is very rich, Fred. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. He doesn't do any good with it. He doesn't make himself comfortable with it. I have no patience with him. Oh, I have. I'm sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Here he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? that he loses some pleasant moment that could do him no harm. Indeed. I think he loses a very good dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but I can't help thinking better of it. I defy him if he finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? After tea, they had some music, for they were a musical family and knew what they were about. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while, they played a game of blind man's buff, and then a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something, and the rest must find out what. He only answering to their questions, yes or no. Yes, he was thinking of an animal. 
a live animal, rather a disagreeable animal, a savage animal, an animal that growled and grunted sometimes and talked sometimes and lived in London and walked about the streets. No, was never killed in a market, was not a horse or an ass or a cow or a bull or a tiger or a dog or a pig or a cat or a bear. <gasps> I have found it out. I know what it is, Fred. I know what it is. What is it? It's your Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> Indeed, it certainly is. Oh, he has given us plenty of merriment, I am sure. And it would be ungrateful not to drink his health. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the man, whatever he is. He wouldn't take it from me, but may he have it nevertheless. Uncle Scrooge. Well, Uncle Scrooge. Uncle Scrooge had imperceptibly become so gay and light of heart that he would have drunk to the unconscious company in an inaudible speech if the ghost had given him time. But the whole scene passed off in the breath of the last words spoken by his nephew, and he and the spirit were again upon their travels. Must they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirit left its blessing and taught Scrooge its precepts. It was a long night, if it were only a night. But Scrooge had his doubts of this, because the ghost grew older. Oh, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it until, looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that his hair was grey. Ah! Uh, our spirit's lives so short. My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight. Tonight? Tonight at midnight. The time is drawing near. Look here. What? What are these? From the folds of its robe, it brought two children. Wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Oh, man, look here, look, look down here. They were a boy and a girl, yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate too in their humility, where graceful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with its freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand like that of age had pinched and twisted them. Spirit, uh, are they yours? They are man's, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance, this girl want. Beware them both, but most of all beware this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doom. Unless the writing be erased, deny it. Slander those who tell you it must be. Have they no refuge or resource? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? And then the bell struck twelve. <laughs> Bye.
Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom draped and hooded coming like a mist along the ground towards him. The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for the very air through which this spirit moved seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me shadows of things that have not yet happened, but will happen in the time before us. Is that so, spirit? Ghost of the future, I fear you more than any spectre I have seen. But, but as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear you company and, and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? It gave him no reply. The hand was pointed straight before them. Lead on, lead on. The night is waning fast and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come towards him. Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress, which bore him up, he thought, and carried him along. The city rather seemed to spring up about them, and there they were in the heart of it. They stopped beside one little knot of businessmen. No, I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. Old Scratch has got his own at last. When did he die? Last night, I believe. Mm. Well, what was the matter with him? I thought he'd never die. God knows. What has he done with his money? He hasn't left it to me, that's all I know. Bye-bye. Scrooge and the Phantom left this busy scene and went into an obscure part of town to a low shop where iron, old rags, bottles, bones and greasy offal were bought. A grey-haired rascal of great age sat smoking his pipe. After a moment, a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop, but she had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too and she was closely followed by a man in faded black. After a short period of blank astonishment in which the old man with the pipe had joined them, they all three burst into a laugh. <laughs> Look here, old Joe, here's a chance. If we haven't all three met here without meaning it. <laughs> you couldn't have met in a better place. Come into the parlour. What have you got to sell? What have you got to sell? Half a minute's patience, Joe. You shall see. What odds, then? What odds, Mrs. Dilber? Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. 
That's true. No man more so. And who's the worst for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. No, indeed. If he wanted to keep them after he was dead, wicked old screw, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had somebody to look after him when he was struck with death instead of lying gasping out his last there alone by himself it's the truest word that ever was spoke it's a judgment on him i wish it was a little heavier judgment and it should have been you may depend upon it if i could have laid my hands on anything else open that bundle old joe and let me know the value of it speak out plain well joe went down on his knees for the greater convenience of opening the bundle and dragged out a large and heavy roll of some dark stuff. What do you call this? Bed curtains? Ah, bed curtains. You don't mean to say you, you, you took them down rings and all with him lying there? Yes, I do. Why not? Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets? Well, who else do you think? He isn't likely to take cold without him, I dare say. <laughs> he didn't die of anything catching, eh? Nah, don't you be afraid of that. And you may look through that shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find a hole in it. It's the best he had, and a fine one too. They'd have wasted it by dressing him up in it if it hadn't been for me. Whoa, what do you call wasting of it? Putting it on him to be buried in, to be sure. <laughs> fool enough to do it, but I took it off again. He frightened everyone away from him when he was alive, to profit us when he was dead. <laughs> Spirit, I see. I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? The scene had changed, and now he almost touched a bare, uncurtained bed. A pale light rising in the outer air fell straight upon this bed, and on it, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this plundered, unknown man. Scrooge glanced towards the phantom. Its steady hand pointed towards the head. The cover was so carelessly adjusted that the slightest raising of it, the motion of a finger upon Scrooge's part, would have disclosed the face. Spirit, this is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave. It's lesson, trust me. Ha, let us go. Still, the ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I, I understand you, and I would do it if I could, but, but I have not the power, spirit. I have not the power. Again, it seemed to look upon him. Spirit, I beseech you, let me see some tenderness connected with a death, or this dark chamber will forever be present to me. The spirit spread its dark robe before him for a moment like a wing, and withdrawing, it revealed a room in poor Bob Cratchit's house. My little child. Oh, Robert. Don't mind it, Father. Don't be grieved. 
Sunday? You went today then, Robert? Oh, yes, my dear. I wish you could have gone. It would have done you good to see how green a place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him that I, I'd walk there on a Sunday. My little, little child. My little child. I am sure we shall none of us forget poor Tiny Tim, shall we? Oh, this first parting that there was amongst us. Never, Father. Never. I'm very happy. I'm very happy. Oh, oh dear. Spectre, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me, what man was that whom we saw lying dead? The churchyard. Here, then, the wretched man whose name he had now to learn lay underneath the ground. It was a worthy place, walled in by houses, overrun by grass and weeds. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that will be or are they shadows of things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which if persevered in they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was as immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger read upon the stone of the neglected grave. Ebenezer Scrooge! No, spirit! Oh, no, no! Spirit, hear me! I am not the man I was! I, I will not be the man I might have been! Why show me this if I am past all hope? Oh, good spirit, your nature intercedes for me and pities me. I, I will honour Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present and the future. Oh, tell me, I may spurge away the writing on this stone. <laughs> Holding up his hands in one last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed and dwindled down into a bedpost. Yes. The bedpost was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own to make amends in. Old Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time be praised for this. 
I, I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. Here, I am here. The shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled. They will be. I know they will. I don't know what to do. Oh, I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I, oh, I'm merry as a schoolboy. Oh, I'm giddy as a drunken man. A Merry Christmas to everybody! Ah, Happy New Year to all the world! <laughs> You're running to the window, he opens it and put out his head. No fog, no mist, no night. Clear, bright, shining, golden day. Glorious! Glorious! Ah, I don't know what day of the month it is. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. <laughs> I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. <laughs> hello. Whoa. Hello there. Boy, what's today? Hey. What's today, my fine fellow? Today? Why, Christmas Day! It's, it's Christmas Day? I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. Oh, they can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can. Um, hello, my fine fellow. Hello. Uh, do you know the poulterers in the next street but one? I should hope I did. An intelligent boy. A remarkable boy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? Have you rolled the big one? What? The one as big as me? <laughs> what a delightful boy. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, Mebuck. It's hanging there now. Oh, is it? Is it? Oh, uh, go and buy it. Go and buy it. And tell him to bring it here that I may give the directions where to take it. Come back with the man in less than five minutes and I'll give you half a crown. All right, sir. The chuckle with which he said this and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab and the chuckle with which he recompensed the boy were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in his chair again and chuckled till he cried. Oh, Scrooge dressed himself all in his best and at last got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth, and as he had seen them with the ghost of Christmas present and walking with his hands behind him, Scrooge regarded every one of them with a delighted smile. Hey, Merry Christmas. Aha! Merry Christmas! Good morning, sir, and a Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. 
Fred. Why, bless my soul. Who's that? It's I, your Uncle Scrooge. I, I have come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? Let him in. It is a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be heartier. Wonderful party. Wonderful games. Wonderful unanimity. Wonderful happiness. But he was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late, that was the thing he had set his heart upon. And he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. Quarter past. No Bob. He was full 18 minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come. Bob's hat was off before he opened the door. His comforter, too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello. What do you mean by coming in at this time of day? I, 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 I am very, very sorry, sir. I am behind my time. You are? Oh, yes, I think you are. Step this way, if you please. It's only once a year, sir. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Mm. No, I'll tell you what, my friend. I am not going to stand for this sort of thing any longer. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. And therefore, I'm about to raise your salary. Sir? A Merry Christmas, Bob. A Merry Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, that I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary, and I'll endeavour to assist your struggling family, and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop. Bob, make up the fires and buy another scuttle full of coal before you dot another eye. <laughs> Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but he knew how to keep Christmas well. If any man alive possessed the knowledge, may that be truly said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone.
I'd like you to please join us for our traditional Rogues Christmas musical invocation, which has been led each year in the Great Hall for the past 12 or 13 by Paul Dorpat. Now this year, Paul will join via an old video featuring the four Dorpat brothers singing the Poor Birdies song. And I know many of you have, have, have sung along with us live. Feel free to sing and dance along this time, the, the Poor Birdies song. Hit it, Josh. There's the and Marvin and you and I can't sing. We're all gonna sing it together. Okay, here we go, Dave. It's gonna be a long winter. What will the poor birdies do then? The fourteens they'll fly to the south, meet a bird in their mouth, and then put it's going to be a long spring. What will the poor birdies do then? The fourteens they'll fly to the sky. You'll clean themselves dry. And they put their heads under their wings. The fourteens Thank you, Paul and brothers. I am the king of everything. Yes, I am the king. Sit upon my golden throne, I wave my ruby ray. I walk the halls and I rock the walls, the revolutionary world. I come on like a hurricane, fly off on the wings of my black bird, my black bird. Many bow before me now as I claim my rightful place. I'm feeling good and being hurt. I've got confidence and grace. 
And if you came back, will you recognize me? Even if you knew Rest made me A new thing Rest made me A new thing Thank you very much. Thanks to our wonderful actors, Kurt Petey, Marianne Owen, and Julie Briskman. Bravo and brava. And thanks to Paul Dorpat. And a special thanks to Pineola for giving us our special intermission. Thanks again to Town Hall for putting up with us again in this most bizarre of years. We hope to see you again live in the Great Hall and what a celebration that will be. Mm. And to all of us, all of you from all of us, we wish you the happiest and most hopeful of holidays. Town Hall Seattle presented this Rogue's Christmas performance of A Christmas Carol. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon. Happy holidays to all. <laughs>